Welcome to Deal Talk, a private equity podcast by Moonfair. Each episode, our CEO, Dr. Stefan Pauls, sits down with leaders from across the industry to discuss their views on the investment landscape, working with portfolio companies, and the lessons they've learned. So at this time, I'd like to turn things over to Moonfair's founder and CEO, Dr. Stefan Pauls, who will introduce today's very special guest, Lauren Gross. Over to you, Stefan. Thank you very much, Pablo. And a very warm, warm welcome to my end to our third deal talk edition today. Today is a very special day as we are having our first belly talk as part of our deal talk series. On a personal note, it's had, it has been a dream for me personally since my early 30s to be able to invest my personal money into the globally leading US tech funds. And they are inaccessible for new investors, in particular for private investors. But my dream became true as Moonfair managed to get access to some of the best US tech funds globally. In the meantime, and, and Pablo talked about it, we offer far more than just access to the best private equity funds globally. We had Costa on the platform leading US tech fund. We had Vista, we had Insight, and many others. And as we speak, we have outstanding funds on the platform. So take a look if you're interested. And actually, the first tech fund that, that brings together today's deal uh, talk with, with what I'm um, talking about is the first fund we had on the platform, actually, it was a bit more than a year or so ago. Uh, we started with a legendary one, and that was Founders Fund. So with, this is why today I'm very proud to say that we not only have a very prestigious, prominent personality from the Silicon Valley with us for our first Valley Talk. Even more so, we have actually Lauren Gross with us, who is a partner and CEO at Founders Fund. Lauren leads fundraising, but also works with a partnership on key strategic issues and investments. She's known to be Peter Thiel's right hand in the firm. A very, very warm welcome, Lauren. Great to have you with us today. Thank you, happy to be here. It's fantastic. Look, there's so much to say about Founders Fund. The firm is iconic, and so are the companies Founders Fund invested in. I'm thinking of names like SpaceX, Palantir, Stripe, Airbnb, Oscar, Spotify, Facebook, just to name a few. The firm clearly has written history in the Silicon Valley, and it belongs to the most successful and admired tech investors in the world. Before we start a bit on the process, all of you today will have the opportunity to ask Lauren questions. I will kick it off with a couple of questions to get the ball rolling, but we have reserved 20 minutes or so in the second half of the session today only for you. So please hand in your questions if you have those in the Zoom tool, you can do so uh, over the course of the session. We'll also try to integrate into your my questions certain uh, aspects and comments that you might have. So please use the tool as much as you want. But now allow to, uh, me to kick it off, uh, Lauren, and allow me to start the session today with a personal question. Look, you are a shining example of what's possible for, for women entering the private equity world. What do uh, you attribute to your personal success and what advice would you give to other women as they enter and climb up the ladder in the technology private equity industry? Well, first, thank you. That's very generous. Um, I think one thing I learned early from my boss, mentor, and partner, Peter Thiel, is to 
figure out your comparative advantage um, as soon as you're able. You know, what are you distinctly good at? Uh, what are you comparatively better at than your peers? Or what do you bring to the table at your particular firm or company? Um, hopefully, it happens to be something you also enjoy. And focus on that, you know, get caught up less in what's popular, what others are doing, what others think you should be doing. You know, being in venture for over a decade, nearly everyone outside of my Founders Fund team has continually pushed me to become an investor because that's what's been most in vogue. Um, when in fact, I'm surrounded by phenomenal investors across my partnership and full team. And what I bring to the table, my comparative advantage, advantages are fundraising and operating. Um, and I've loved focusing on those. Um, so find, whatever your gender, find your comparative advantage and focus on that would be my answer. Terrific insight. And thanks for, for sharing. Look, Lauren, you know that. Um, but for the broader group, an unprecedented value equation really is happening in the technology sector. Uh, industry experts are... Uh, foreseeing that six trillion US dollar in market value to be equated by tech companies in the next 20 years. And most of this value creation is actually happening in private markets. We at Moonfair, as solid neutral observers of, of the space, are seeing a trend here, which is that it's becoming more and more commonplace for private companies to stay private for much longer. And at the same time, and this is really me speaking here privately, I would see and, and, and would dare to say there's an incredible asset inflation. I would call it value exaggeration that is happening in the public markets. I'm thinking there are also of some very disappointing IPOs, more recently, Peloton, Uber, or WeWork, that didn't play out. It almost seems that most of the value creation has been eaten up or captured in private markets. And there's not much left there for the public markets. What is, if you agree, behind this trend? And will there continue to be significant upside for those that are investing in your funds? Sure. Well, we've certainly seen this continued trend over the past, you know, even decade. Um, in fact, one of the reasons Peter asked me to join Founders Fund back in 2010 was because he foresaw this trend. Um, of companies staying private for longer, of more of that value being captured by the private side. And he felt Founders Fund was uniquely positioned to take advantage of said trend, you know, given our comfort in taking outsized positions. Um, so I certainly see us, you know, continuing to be able to deliver that for investors. Um, you know, we expanded our platform into Founders Fund growth last year. So I only see us being able to further take advantage of this trend as we double down more um, into our winners um, at growth stages uh, with Founders Fund Growth. Thank you, Lauren. Look, moving to a very uh, common topic these days, and I'm talking about SPACs. Everyone you know, is talking about it. There's almost no day where you don't see one floating. Just in March this year in the US, only talking SPACs celebrated a head running. Uh, milestone by breaking into their uh, 2020 issuance just in the first three months of, of the year. And I had another guest here, uh, Lauren, to put it in pers into perspective. Markus Brennick is uh, co-running uh, um, the private equity firm at EQT. 
And he was, you know, very skeptical about this phenomenon. Of course, you know, he's a private equity, a traditional private equity guy, but he didn't see much uh, value in that new phenomenon. How do you view SPACs as a long-term exit road and um, as they preferred uh, uh, replacement for the old-fashioned IPO? Or is it just a second-class route to the public markets? I think it's a good question and one that's still playing out. I'm unsure I have particularly strong views on SPACs. You know, I will say at Founders Fund, um, we run a purposely concentrated portfolio, meaning at, Evan, at any given time, there are as few as a dozen positions that comprise 80, 90% of our portfolio value and returns across funds. And of those core positions, you know, over the past year, five of those names went out, um, Airbnb, Palantir, Affirm, Wish, Oscar, and all were either IPOs or direct listings, um, if that's sort of one, one answer to the question. Very helpful. Although I saw, you know, that Peter might, but this is, of course, something you can't comment on, you know, merge um, with a company in Southeast Asia and so on, but very, very helpful. Look, uh, when talking about the investment themes the firm is interested in and what, what you know, stands out is that there are five very distinct areas that you have highlighted, which is aerospace, biotech, AI, energy, and the internet. So for me, from an outside perspective, quite diverse. And my question would be, what is the common theme, the common thread behind them? Sure. You know, we certainly have invested in the areas mentioned, um, though we truly are stage and sector agnostic. And that's largely because we'd be the first to admit it's not as though we predicted social media and then found Facebook or predetermined there'd be something interesting in private aerospace and then found SpaceX. Generally, it's been quite the opposite. You know, our willingness to look across sectors, to be open to new ideas, um, you know, to challenge conventional thinking has led us to the best investments more than a sectorally driven approach. Um, with that said, the singular common thread across all, all of our investments um, would be the exceptional founders behind them. Thank you. Look, your flagship fund, and uh, this is, uh, I guess, no confidential information, has an incredible return profile with returns up to you know, 5x and more. What is driving, in your view, this outstanding performance? And how do we expect this, you know, in light also of the asset inflation I was talking about, private companies staying longer and so on, how do you expect this to develop from, from now onwards? What will be different? What will be the same? So I think there have been two key drivers to Founders Fund's continued strong returns. One would be independent thinking, um, and two would be concentration. I think, you know, over the past decade and a half, we've built our team prudently. Um, we've tended to focus on the individual over a specific role or function. You know, and as we grow, I think it's ever more important for us to emphasize fiercely independent thinking uh, that deeply challenges convention and even our own views, um, particularly as the industry becomes more saturated with capital and, you know, with that group think. 
Um, the, the second driver, which I've mentioned a couple of times now, is concentration. You know, I think um, these two drivers have been true from the onset of Founders Fund um, and are only more true today, particularly on the concentration front, because we now have the platform and fund sizes to do so. Um, to state the obvious, you know, it was impossible to write $150 million check into Airbnb when our fund sizes were roughly 200 million. You know, we had to strike that across a few funds. Um, now we have the capital structure to essentially write as large of a check as the team deems appropriate. Um, you know, I, I joined Founders Fund because I was inspired by the group's different way of thinking um, and the group's collective willingness to take big risks and make unconventional bets. And I think all of that is still very true today. Thank you, Lauren. Let's talk a little bit, uh, if you don't mind, about Europe versus the US and just you know, introducing the discussion or the question here with some numbers. According to CB Insight, end of 2019, we had a total of 211 unicorn startups in the US versus some 52 in Europe. And even more impressive, the US unicorns were standing for a market cap of north of 600 billion US dollar versus 100 billion in Europe. You, Founders Fund, have recently made a couple of investments in Germany and in the broader European ecosystem. You know, there are many people saying here that Europe really has lost already the battle in the past, is going to lose the battle in the future when we talk about AI due to data regulation, et cetera. But where do you see the European ecosystem in the larger context and where do you see it going from here? Sure. Well, it's true regarding Germany, a trade republic out of Germany is one of our newer drivers to the platform. You know, in the past, both Spotify and DeepMind out of Europe were drivers of earlier funds. You know, I, I would say we've always been opportunistic about investing and that includes sector, stage, geography. Um, what we do care about when entering other geographies is our comparative advantage. You know, what do we understand about this particular investment that might not be in our home geography that others do not? Um, and why are we well suited to back it? Um, but certainly if you look at the past sort of decade or particularly half decade, you know, each year we've seen um, an increase in deals in our portfolio outside of Silicon Valley, you know, across the, street, the states and then the world at large. Let's talk a bit, a bit about your portfolio. And there's one company I want to, you know, spend a little bit of uh, time on it. Look, you have an amazing portfolio. I talked about it, Facebook, Spotify, Wish, Airbnb, et cetera. But there's one company, and I'm talking about Stripe, which recently closed around valuing the company at 95 billion, which makes it, I think, unofficially titled the most valuable private company globally. And this is a company, and that's for me the interesting point where you invested in from, from CSA, and since then you have continued to, to back it. And this is important to mention because our research, and I, I guess you will you know, confirm this, has found out that when it comes to investing, you really have to take a long-term view and you have to back your best winners over in the cost market cycles. So staying invested across cycles is, is very, very important. Could you talk a little bit more about and share how you gained in this particular case here, Ms. Frag, the conviction in this company 
early on and why you were so confident making Founders Fund largest follow-on investments into that company? Sure. Well, you know, well, first, one of the core drivers behind our success is concentration. You know, our team is quite skilled and bold about concentrating capital into our winners. And to be more specific, it's not unusual for us to deploy 100 million, 200 million, you know, over time at cost into a given name, ultimately yielding you know, anywhere from several hundred million to several billion in exposure in a given name. Um, so, you know, we've invested over 100 million at cost into roughly a dozen names, including Stripe, SpaceX, Airbnb, Palantir, Wish, and Girl, Bitcoin, Affirm. I'm missing a few there, but a, a number of names. And, you know, specific with Stripe, but I think true of all of these, normally this level of conviction begins with the founding team. And this is certainly the case with Stripe. It's an A-plus team, both from a vision and from an execution standpoint. Um, and it also happens to be a sector our team, you know, has deep operational expertise in um, with Peter as one of the founders of PayPal. Yeah, yeah. No, this is, I can understand this. When we, we've talked, look, when it comes to Founders Fund and everyone is talking about these great names, the Airbnbs and Facebooks and so on, but can you share for, for the broader audience a little bit more on, on the hidden champions? Yeah, Not like uh, those companies that have made it already to, to unicorns. So the lesser known investments in your portfolio that you've made and you're excited about uh, and that have to you know, equally have the potential to become transformative as sure. all the Sure. The next sort of core set of drivers are certainly a handful of those. You know, I, I mentioned Trade Republic earlier. I would state that again, you know, in your neck of the woods. Um, the overall market for retail investing has seen significant acceleration. So brokerage as a sector, you know, has seen unprecedented growth. Um, and Trade Republic has been one of the most effective in capturing this demand, um, particularly in Germany and now expanding across Europe. I'd also list Flexport, which um, is one of our freight forwarding companies, essentially kayak for freight forwarding. Um, RigUp, which is a labor market a labor marketplace across uh, skilled trade industries. Um, let's see one other fair, uh, which is an online wholesale marketplace connecting local retailers with independent brands. Um, there are a handful of others, but that's sort of a good start. Terrific. So many, many reasons to stay invested and continue to invest into private markets and, and tech in particular. So far, thank you so much, Lauren. That was terrific in terms of insights. And, and for me, really, it's, as I said, an extraordinary pleasure, pleasure that you're, you are with us uh, today. But now, as promised, let's get our audience involved and uh, let them ask. And, and, and Pablo, please take over uh, and, and um, call out their questions. Uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure there will be many, many more over and beyond what we've discussed so far. Um, Lauren, how can you differentiate visionary entrepreneurs from uh, founders who might be, let's say, a little bit delusional? <laughs> it's a good question. It's a, it's a great question, actually. And I think it's, um, it's, there's a fine line, right? Like you need to be a little bit crazy 
I think you can build um, a multi-billion dollar company, a tens of billion dollar company that no one else has been able to. Um, I think the uh, probably short answer would just be pattern matching. You know, our team has done this for a couple of decades now. We have seen um, hundreds of thousands of companies. And over time, you start to refine that gauge on what is just crazy enough versus a little too crazy. How does Peter Thiel's emphasis on the power law distribution of returns and venture capital impact founder funds approach to portfolio construction? Pablo, just uh, intervening, if you could speak up a little bit more because I hardly can hear it. Sure. I, I think the question was regarding, regarding power law. And I think the answer is, you know, um, one that I probably stated a few times now concentration. We do believe um, it is true that the top one, two, maybe three. You know, if you're lucky, five names drive the fund's returns. Um, what we've also found in the industry at large is capital is not allocated accordingly, meaning as an early investor, you should have insider advantage on, you know, where, where are things really working and you should be doubling, tripling, quadrupling down into those names. Um, and that's certainly what we have done as a fund. Um. Could you talk a little bit about what it's like to work together with Moonfair? Someone is asking, why does a access-constrained USDT like Congress want to work with FinTech with a footprint in Europe and Asia on fundraising? Sure. Well, you know, I think um, we've been in a fortunate position to be substantially oversubscribed um, for our funds, so we can be very thoughtful about our LPs. I think, you know, we've always tried to be thoughtful about diversification um, across type across um, geography and certainly Moonfair has, you know, a specific reach that being based in California, um, we might not have access to. Um, another one here, what role does seed stage investing play for Founders Fund at the moment? An important one, you know, we allocate a few percent of every fund, which, you know, when you're at the billion dollar plus scale is, is real dollars um, into investments that are at cost a million or less. And it serves a few purposes. One, um, I think it, it tells founders they can come to Founders Fund at any point in time, that even at a multi-billion dollar scale, we want to see things early. Um, and hopefully some of those translate into, you know, follow-on investing for the fund. And I, then I think outside of that direct benefit, there's also indirect ones where it helps us get knowledgeable on a sector that might be new to us. It helps us expand our network. You know, oftentimes that particular deal hasn't led to a core founders fund investment, but it might have led to important research that led to one or connected us with another founder that led to one um, and so on. Um, let's do another one here. Are there any specific traits that you look for in founders? Um, what do you think separates successful founders from the rest of the pack? You know, I, I think for us, and this is probably not true for everyone, but um, we certainly invest in entrepreneurs who are extraordinarily ambitious, you know, bold in their visions, and generally seeking big and real change. Um, you know, I think our, our tagline back in the day was we wanted flying cars. We ended up with 140 characters. And that wasn't meant to be a direct knock at Twitter. It was meant to be more commentary on venture at large 
and how much of industry was lookalike, risk averse, um, largely backing incremental technologies versus transformational ones. Um, and so, you know, our largest checks have gone to founders and companies with really big visions and the ability to execute on those visions, whether it was combating terrorism, colonizing Mars, curing cancer, you know, long before they came, became mainstream successes. We have a question about blockchain. Um, what's your view on the, the recent DeFi explosion? Will it, will it reach mainstream adoption? Sorry, I couldn't quite hear that one. Something about crypto? I think I, I think I heard a question about Bitcoin or crypto. You know, I think, um, uh, not sure I got it specifically, but you know, in terms of Bitcoin, it has credit to the team. It's something we've started investing in early. So while it's very topical today, um, we wrote our first investment into Bitcoin back in 2014, um, seven years ago. And credit to our LPs, they enabled us to do that. It was unusual at the time for investors to be, um, or venture to be investing in um, currency, Bitcoin specifically. And then we built a very solid position there over the years um, while also realizing gains at local peaks. Okay, um, as a VC, how do you pitch yourself to startups? What, what do you bring besides just a big check? I think a few things. I, I think um, one of the things I would lead with is um, in the industry, there is a lot of, in our view, um, you know, false promised value add, you know, this sort of capital plus model where um, investors promise all these things. And I think um, instead our view is, it's your company. It's the founder's company. You know, Facebook is Facebook because of Mark Zuckerberg and the rest of his strong founding team. Uh, SpaceX is SpaceX because of Elon Musk and his surrounding team. And we would say the most important thing we did was wrote a check in the early days when others wouldn't. Um, and then we're really there for support and strategic soundboarding. Um, but it really is the founder's company. And in our view, um, there's a selection bias where that attracts sort of the top founders. Um, so that's sort of what we lead with. You know, I would say in addition to that, yes, at the end of the day, a lot of our partnership and team has a very strong operation, operational expertise at, you know, billion dollar plus companies. And we bring that to the table as well. Okay, there, there's a question that uh, is maybe particularly interesting to hear your, your perspective on. Um, the, someone is saying that less than 2% is invested in businesses led by women. And how do, do we overcome this as an industry? Certainly, um, the gender ratio is still egregiously off. Um, that's true across the board. It's true from um, venture and the venture industry as well. So you don't have as many females looking at businesses. Um, and that sort of skews what's being funded. I think that's one area of the problem to solve. Um, I don't know if I have a specific answer to that. I think my personal answer to it has just been being a woman in venture and, and hopefully being, you know, a good example of one and um, always happy to encourage others. Kind of on that trope, are there any areas that you would not invest into for ethical reasons? No, we're pretty, I, I don't know if there's a specific, we, we're pretty open. I, I think you know, ethical has a, uh, <laughs> is sort of a trigger, a trigger word for some. And I'm not sure, I think specifically, you know, we've often been ahead of the curve, right? So this isn't maybe an ethical answer, but I remember when we first invested in SpaceX, um, 
you know, over a decade ago, people thought it was insane to back a private rocket company. Um, or when we first invested in cannabis, you know, over half a decade ago, when it wasn't on the radar, people that sort of brought up some is that ethical question. So I think, um, we're certainly willing to push the boundaries. I'm not sure I would use the word ethical to, um, to describe that though. Okay. Um, let's get back to, to finance. <laughs> how, um, how do you think about how much capital to set aside for follow-on investments? Yeah, you know, it's, it's admittedly more of an art than a science. Um, we'd be the first to admit that it's an imperfect exercise. I do sit down with our CFO once a quarter and we go through the full portfolio with input from the investment team, um, you know, on our best guesses. I think with Founders Fund, you know, one thing that we do that's unusual is we don't necessarily do our pro rata. You know, that sort of is the industry default. Um, and if you're doing it that way, it's much easier to map, right? I think um, to steal Peter's verbiage, pro rata is lazy intellectual thinking. You know, it's very unusual. We feel exactly the same about that company as we did the last time we invested in it. And so um, we're almost always doing double, triple, quadruple our pro rata or super, super pro rata, or sometimes not investing. And we're very direct with our companies um, upfront about that, that if things are working, we will be the first to double down. And if things are not, we'll be harsher in cutting. And I think, again, that selects the strongest founders in our view. Um, but it does make that mapping um, harder, you know, because sometimes it's 300% of what we've done, 0%. Um, but in aggregate, you know, if it's helpful to give an aggregate answer, it's probably roughly 30% um, of any fund is, is for that. Okay. Um, we talked about earlier, you know, Stefan was asking in your opinion about companies staying private for longer. Um, given this, do you see more robust secondary markets and private company shares developing? We certainly have. I, th I think we've already seen that. You know, I think the secondary market, when I started, it was really a place for de minimis liquidity, you know, maybe for, you know, a team member to get, you know, sub, sub million dollar trades. And now you're really seeing hundreds of millions um, happen in that. I think um, with that said, companies are also getting savvier about it. I think in the early days, it was relatively unregulated by the companies. You know, you could trade what you want to trade and now a lot are requiring company approval so that the company can control the price. Um, but yes, it's certainly um, an industry that we've seen develop over the years. Okay, on the subject of returns, what kind of IRR does Founders Fund target in general? And what kind of loss ratio are you okay with? And how do you think about these metrics inside the fund? So um, I want to be thoughtful about what I say on returns, but we, we do, we focus more on multiple than on IRR, you know, and in every fund we are looking for 5X plus. We've been very lucky to get that. Um, even as our fund sizes have grown, um, that is still our internal target. On, you know, loss ratios, I think, again, this comes back to the concentration piece. And, um, you know, I think one stat I like to throw out is our largest investment to date was roughly 300 million into a given name. And as I mentioned earlier, there's roughly a dozen names where we put over 100 million at cost. Our largest loss to date is 20 million. So we've really capped those losses very, very well. Um, and simultaneously where we've gone big, we've gotten those right. And that's crucially important. Mm -hmm. um, getting to the core of, of the company, uh, how do you source GP talent and kind of avoid groupthink? Is there anything special you can share about your hiring processes? 
I credit Peter for a lot of this. He really is, you know, one of the godfathers of independent thought. Um, and I think that's something that comes, you know, very innately to him. And so it's certainly something he focuses on and screens for. And, you know, in, in growing the team, um, there are exceptions to this, but for the most part, we have groomed our team in-house. Um, we've been less inclined to hire from industry. Um, and the majority of the team, you know, has started um, as an intern, principal, or associate, and we have sort of groomed them in, in sort of the founder's fun way um, over the years. Mm-hmm. So um, we'd like to ask sometimes some challenging questions. Um, so obviously, when things go great, that's wonderful. But what is your strategy if you recognize that an investment is, is not going the way you had planned? Again, I, I think this is where the capping, you know, where the team has been excruciatingly thoughtful on where those larger dollars have gone. We've been fortunate to get those larger bets right. Um, I'd argue one of the reasons for that is we are our own largest investor. That's unusual for the industry. You know, oftentimes you see a one to 2% GP commit. We have hundreds of millions of dollars from the GP and partnership at large and team at large um, in every single fund. And I think that really makes you all that more thoughtful on where those incremental dollars are going. Um, and it's not to say things haven't gone wrong. You know, there's, there's plenty of times part of the model, especially not in our growth fund, but in our venture funds, you expect a large number of those companies to fail. And if they're not, you're probably not taking enough risk. And so we're very risk tolerant, um, but we try to be very thoughtful about the follow-on dollars. Okay, we have a we have a question about uh, the Chinese market. Um, would you invest in opportunities in China, and if so, how do you source opportunities in emerging markets these days? So China specifically, we've done extremely little. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but um, in geographies, we really like to understand our comparative advantage. You know, what do we understand about this area that others don't? How versed are we in the jurisdictional risks and the regulation risks? Um, I don't think we would say that about ourselves from China. So um, we have not played there. There are plenty of local players there. People want exposure to China. And then I think idiosyncratically, um, as the brand has grown, it's been great to see sort of the brand recognition we have now um, that we didn't always have, honestly, across um, Europe and other geographies where we do opportunistically invest. Okay. Um, a little future gazing here. Could you highlight any industries or themes that you think are especially attractive in the next years? So I think this answer would be very partner specific at Founders Fund versus firm specific. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we do not um, allocate capital by sector. Every fund, and that's because we'd be the first to admit we we didn't call it that way. You know, Fund One was really driven by Facebook. And so you could have called it like the social media fund versus fund two was really harder tech leaning. It was driven by SpaceX and Palantir. Um, fund three had a really strong AI bet in it. Fund four was sort of share economy with Airbnb and Lyft and, and so on down the scale. And that's not predicted at the onset. That is just how it is played out. Um, you know, with that said, we certainly have partners on the team with you know, varying degrees of expertise and areas of interest that we encourage individuals to pursue. So as example, one of our partners, Trey Stevens, has a very deep background in government and security and defense, and that's been an area of focus for him. Thank you. Um, 
maybe one last question and, and then um, I'll turn it back over to Stefan. Uh, there's currently a lot of talk about hedge funds disrupting the VC market, especially at the growth stage. How do you look at this evolution? I think this is true across the board where you're just seeing more platforms than you are sort of individual um, stage focuses. So you're seeing people move up to scale, right? Ventures moved up as well. We've admittedly moved up as well into growth. And you've seen on the growth side, um, you know, it come down as well. So it's just more of a flow across. Great. Thank you. Um, Stefan, the floor is yours. Look, uh, there are so many more questions from the audience. And of course, I, I also have a, a, a couple of more, but one or two I, I really want to ask you, Lauren. And there's one very specific thing that I found striking when it comes to deal-making or decision-making in the firm. Now, most venture capital firms, and I know it from the private equity industry, they have this you know, majority or super majority approach uh, and vote by general partners when it comes to decision-making. Uh, at Founders Fund, I understand that three people are really making the decisions and everyone has a veto power, so to say. Um, two questions. Why have you set it up this way? And I read it, I think, in one of Peter's books, but would be great to hear it from, from you. And do you can share any stories where there have been, have there have been ever a disagreement where Peter said, this is a deal I really want, and then two others raised their arm and said, look, I'm veto against it? So perhaps the book was not quite accurate. Um, I, I think if anything, we run a more democratic structure than most. Um, we have a lean team, um, roughly, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 people on the investment team. And every team member has a voice at the table. Um, you know, if I were to describe our investment discussions, they, you know, they would be process light and content heavy. Um, we care far less about checking various boxes um, and more about did the team members with the most relevant expertise meet this company? You know, was there sufficient debate? Was there good pushback? Um, I've seen us come to investment decisions um, in hours and I've seen it take months. And it's largely dependent on factors, including how well do we know the team? How well versed we are in this sector? And then of course, you know, big one check size. Um, and on the check size note, you know, Founders Fund is somewhat unusual in that we write million dollar checks and $100 million checks. And neither of those is a minimum or a maximum. And we scale voting accordingly. Um, and so, for example, and this sort of speaks to the question, like investments of a million dollars or less require any two members of the investment team, any two. Whereas when you get to larger check sizes of 50 million plus, that requires the majority of the partnership. Got it. Very helpful. Look, Lauren, as I've kicked uh, off today's deal talk session with a personal question to you, uh, allow me to finish the session with my final question. Again, a personal one. So if you had to summarize so far your time at Founders Fund in one word, what would it be? Fascinating. Terrific. Thanks so much again, Lauren. It was great to have you with us. And dear audience, before we conclude, allow me to hint you to our next Deal Talk event. And this will be, again, really with an extraordinary guest from the industry. Uh, uh, and I will have the opportunity to get his views, his insight views on the private equity industry. It will be with Kurt Björklund, 
who is since earlier this year Permira's global managing partner. He serves on the Permira Holding Limited Board, the Executive Committee, the Firm's Operation Committee, the Portfolio Review Committee, and so on and so forth. And he co-chairs the main funds investment committee with the firm. So a very, very senior person from the industry. And he will be with us on May, as you see, 18th at uh, 1 p.m. CET. So if you are interested, please sign in. You will find the link uh, on this page, uh, but also in the, in the chat room. And with that, let me conclude. And really, let me thank you again for your attention. It's terrific to see how many people have died in. Stay healthy, and hopefully I have the chance to welcome you soon again at our Deal Talk series. All the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, search for Deal Talk wherever you listen to your podcasts. Want to know more about investing in private markets? Visit moonfair.com. <laughs>